and welcome to another Conversation in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe and anthropology. Produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Cameo Daly, Mithali Mayher and Matt Barlow. This podcast is made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association and supported by the Faculty of Arts and Education at Deakin University. It's Tim here with a short message. This 28th episode begins a set of changes in the podcast, including a slight change to its name and some major changes to its production collective. When David and myself started the podcast in April 2017, we were conducting a kind of experiment in public anthropology. We both had some experience with audio producing, and when we were asked to organize the monthly disciplinary seminar series at our university, we thought, well, why not record a quick conversation while we have these great scholars around? We put the first one on the internet, and then another one, and then another one, and we circulated them on lists and social media pages and newsletters, and soon we had a few hundred listeners. Since then, we've recorded interviews with all kinds of people in all kinds of places, and while the audience has grown significantly, our resourcing has not really kept pace. This podcast is made possible by a lot of volunteer labor and a small amount of institutional support, and the old arrangement was just not sustainable. So over the past few months, David and I reached out to some colleagues from a variety of different institutions and formed a new and larger collective to bring you further conversations about the state of anthropology and what it has to tell us in the 21st century. In recognition of this new era, we're changing the name, and as you'll see with time, changing up the format. Today, Timothy Neal interviews Michael J. Fisher, also known as Mike, Professor of Anthropology and Science and Technology Studies at MIT. Mike is the author of several books, including Emergent Forms of Life and The Anthropological Voice, 2003, Anthropological Futures, 2009, and most recently, Anthropology in the Meantime, all released by Duke University Press. In his conversation with Tim, which was recorded in New Orleans in 2019, Mike recounts his transition from studies of religion in Iran and India into the flourishing field of science and technology studies. Across these various fields, both geographic and topical, Mike outlines his commitment to comparative method and to ethnography. It's the description of local conditions on the ground, he argues, that challenges reductive conceptualizations of social phenomena. So here it is. Enjoy this conversation between Tim and Michael J. Fisher. So, Mike, we like to start these things off with uh, a little question about how you came to the world of anthropology or even how you came to call yourself an anthropologist in this life. So that one's pretty simple, I think. I started out as, I guess, a kind of geographer. My father was, when he immigrated to the United States, he was trained as a historian, but when he uh, worked in the United States, he redescribed, relabeled himself as a geographer. My mother was a geodesist, which is someone who describes the shape and size of the world, so also earth sciences in a way. I didn't know that was a thing. Oh, absolutely. It's, uh, it's actually, we might come to that later, it's actually, or right now for that matter, in many senses, she was a very strong influence on me. And one of the objects that I bring to science studies is the object of the geoid, which is the shape of the earth, which it, or it is the, um, the model of the earth that people who work on space trajectories and 
other kinds of trajectories um, need to utilize because the Earth is a lumpy ball. It's not a sphere. It's an it's a uh, solid ellipsoid. Um, so it's um, flatter at the poles and and broader at the equator, but it also has depressions and goes up and down. And it depends on how you're measuring this. If you're interested in gravity as the baseline, um, oceanographers and geodesists disagree on whether the baseline should be an equipotential. So equipotential is a modeling term. So oceanographers debate about whether the surface of the sea, sea level, is an equipotential surface because the Pacific is at a slightly different level than the Atlantic, and how do you how do you even that out? And if you're doing gravity on land surfaces, you also have to worry with, you know, mountains pull gra gravity in one direction, mm -hmm. and so there are all of these corrections that have to be med made. So the idea of an ideal model that is a mathematical model that is modeling that is different from but is your reference point to reality is something that I think with a lot and bring to science studies. I can see how your mum's work was uh, making the familiar strange, as they say. Well, I guess as a little kid, yeah, the idea of wrapping my head around the geoid might have been making strange, although I grew up with, with these ideas <laughs> and with her... You grew up strange. Put, putting, I grew up strange, putting all these things together. I grew up as an immigrant child and... So everything was strange, you know, culture is strange and, and all of that. And my father was a geographer, so at the time that I relabeled myself as an anthropologist, he said, well, that's interesting, that's fine, that's what human geographers do, what's the difference? And uh, I had to explain to him the history of geography at that point was, was changing in a quite radically mathematical, statistical direction, which was something that I didn't want to do. So anyhow, the more direct answer to your question is I was an undergraduate at Johns Hopkins, and I was probably the only undergraduate who majored in a sense. You couldn't really major in it in geography, so I was a liberal arts geography major. But probably the most influential year was a junior year abroad at the London School of Economics where I did philosophy and I did international relations. I did a little bit of this, that, and the other thing. But basically, I was converted to anthropology by the second generation of British social anthropologists, so the students of Malinowski and Evan Richard and, and those kinds of people. And then I went to the University of Chicago because the folks in Britain, interestingly enough, said, oh, you might want to go on and do a PhD. Don't stay here. Go right. to Chicago. What so was I the, did. What was the logic then at the time? I think they saw the um, the impending decay of the kind of orthodoxies that they had built up, which were really important at the time that they were were building them, um, and they thought more exciting stuff was happening in America, mm -hmm. and Chicago was the sort of place that they thought was the most exciting place. It was the beginnings of symbolic anthropology, so there was an excitement about that. There's something new happening, and there were all these new faculty members that were coming in from various places. So I did that, and um, continuing a strong bent with, for philosophy. So I'd done some philosophy at Hopkins, and I did some with... Uh, some people who have been suspect in science studies, like mm -hmm. Karl Popper, who uh, was one of my teachers, and Ernest Gellner was another, 
and I even took courses in metaphysics uh, with J.N.W. Watkins. Uh, so it was a really interesting time. This was also the time of the civil rights movement and uh, Vietnam War, and so all of that. The fields were, there was a call for relevance for these fields and not just a descriptive sort of stance to them. Right, and that's part so, of the revolution you're talking, well, or the change that you're talking about in terms was, of anthropology coming out of the British tradition. Well, in part, I suppose, the British anthropologists took a bad rap for being handmaidens of colonialism and all of that, which is both true and not true, since one of the features of British social anthropology was that they tried very hard to make a separation between the anthropologists that they trained for colonial service and anthropologists that they trained as theoreticians, academics. I was trained in the latter tradition. Um, and I think a lot, so a lot of the history of anthropology is written by later generations as we have overcome the stupidities of earlier generations. Right. Whereas a more historically generous approach to all of these would be to see the context in which people were working. And one of those contexts was a st very strong move within British social anthropology of leftists against colonialism. And that gets written out. So I also honor that tradition as well. So I don't know that it was so much a revolution of that sort. It was competition between the Brits and, and the Americans over the, the grand ideas that would be the concepts for anthropology. And you came to do research in Iran from... Well, I first went to Jamaica, yeah. that's right, and uh, then I went to Iran, that's correct. Yeah. What, 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 I mean, what are the pathways, you know, the Chicago, from Chicago to Jamaica and Iran, like... So... Um, what, what do you think led you in your choices? Well, there were some pragmatic choices and there were some theoretical choices. Great. So the theory trajectory was doing social theory at Chicago... So reading a lot of Weber and Troch about the sociological history of Protestantism and the cycles of sects breaking apart, becoming denominations. So in that language, the theoretical language is a church is something that you're born into, Roman Catholic Church. A sect is something that you voluntarily commit to, usually a small group, where Peer pressure keeps you to the commitments that you make. And the argument that Max Weber made and Trolsch followed up with was that that's a particularly effective social organization for people in the upper lower classes, lower middle classes. If you don't spend your money on wine, women, and song, you might be able to save some money and work your way up the ladder. If you do, then you're not so much committed to strict morality in the sense of sectarian uh, communities, and so um, you become denominations. So there's a cyclical process, particularly in the United States, of new denominations being made out of older sects. So in Jamaica, I studied that process as well as doing a comparative kinship study between the Caribbean, West Africa, England, and the United States. And then when I got to my PhD, 
I went to Iran in part, there's a step in between, but I, I went to Iran in part to try to work outside the Christian world and see if the same kinds of processes could be articulated. So I went to study Zoroastrianism. I had wanted to study the mountain tribes in Afghanistan, but I couldn't get in. Um, So then my plan B was sitting down with my advisors. Well, why don't you go study either the Jains or the Zoroastrians because no social scientist studied either one of them. And because I was at Chicago, which is very strong in Indian studies, I said not India because I'll have to study languages here and it'll take me three years to get to the field. So I'll do Zoroastrians. Um, didn't know very much about them, but started learning Persian and um, eventually ended up in a small town where I did a comparative study of Zoroastrians, Jews, Baha'is, and Shiites and could feel the resistance to the monarchy at that point. It was clear that if something was going to happen, it was going to come from a mobilization of religious forces. Mm-hmm. This would be more than a decade before the revolution. Yes, it was. Yeah. It was... Um, I first went to Iran in 1969, uh, stayed there for two and a half years, more or less. I went to India to follow Zoroastrians who had migrated to India uh, in between. And then I came back to do part of a seven-country comparative study on the training of Muslim religious leaders in the madrasa systems from Morocco to Indonesia. And I was part of, in each case, there was supposed to be a native um, local researcher and an American researcher, so pairing them. So I was the American designee, although my counterpart was just as American as I was, although he was born in Iran and and so on. Um, And I ended up studying the madrasa system in Qom, which is the heart of the Shiite training um, center, and saw a kind of rehearsal for the revolution, went back last time and just before the revolution actually got underway. So um, I wrote a dissertation on sort of comparative religion, if you like, sort of the social dynamics of these four traditions in central Iran. But my first book was on the revolution itself and the beginnings of the revolution within the study that I'd done on the madrasa system which, when the revolution happened, made the book sellable, which it hadn't been before. <laughs> so history sometimes helps out uh, individual careers. So, so that's how I got there. I guess that also meant, though, that you probably couldn't go back. You know? That's right. So I didn't go back for about 20 years. Mm-hmm. And uh, so first I followed my earlier experience to India, and there I was... <laughs> I was interested in, I concocted a proposal that was very complicated, it was probably would have taken many years to do. History intervened again. Um, the proposal was to study the Jain community and the Parsi community, Parsi Zoroastrians in, in India, both of whom are mercantile communities, so picking up you know, unfinished business and mm-hmm. Jain community that had been suggested earlier on. And my idea was to compare these two quite wealthy mercantile communities that had become industrialists and to see how each of those communities dealt in the Indian context with um, 
their labor forces, which would have been different castes, different different behavioral patterns, different religions, different caste locusts, and so on. Unfortunately for the project, it was 1984, which was the year Bhopal blew up. It was the year that Mrs. Gandhi was assassinated. And it was the year that Ahmedabad, the town that I was working in, in Gujarat, blew up over what Americans call affirmative action over medical schools and engineering schools. And also my parents both fell ill, so we had to come back for that. Uh, So I've continued to be interested in that, but I've not really published on that. Mm -hmm. And is that about the time that you became, you know, when did you you blend into the world of STS? Or was was there a historical moment where you suddenly... So that story has to do with my vision of anthropology from early on, coming out of a geographical tradition, coming out of the LSC, and the idea that, and Chicago, for that matter, that anthropology was supposed to be a comparative study of societies around the world and not just a study of odd religions or odd ethnic groups or mm-hmm. so on. So really including the industrial world. Um, so the division between sociology and anthropology being an artificial one if, insofar as the division of labor was the first world belongs to sociology and the rest of the world belongs to anthropology. So I didn't believe in any of that. Pragmatically, what happened was um, I was teaching at Harvard, um, and I got recruited to join and to rebuild a little graduate program at Rice University. And there I eventually became the director of the Center for Cultural Studies, which was a very interesting moment in which anthropology was kind of the leader of bringing the humanities and social sciences together. So that was my remit there. But as, uh, so we interfaced with bringing in people to a, a very small but elite university that didn't yet have feminist studies and comparative religious studies or real me- media studies. And we seeded that because we had fellowships that we could hand out through the Rockefeller Foundation. And around that time, we hired Sharon Trowick, one of the founders of STS, in however you define the genealogy. Yeah, however you but want to put it together. So, so certainly a, uh, a mother of, of STS. So we recruited her, and she and I started trying to build an interface between anthropology and the sciences on this campus that was very strong in the sciences and engineering. And then a couple of jobs came up, and she told me to apply to the one at MIT, mm-hmm. and which is where we had recruited her from. But she had an opportunity at UCLA, so we, we parted. And so that's how I got into STS, was out of an interest in, you know, from my mother on, um, a sense that the sciences were part of the world that we live in, mm-hmm. and the technological world that we live in, and that anthropology, if it was not to become archaic and obsolete, really needed to engage with that. Because there is still, I guess there's, a, there's for me, as an outsider to American anthropology, but an occasional visitor in the last few years, 
there is both um, a presence, especially thinking about PhD projects and people who are coming out of PhDs, both a presence of this kind of symmetry. You you can't ignore the presence of science and technology in anybody's life, no right. matter who you're studying. But nonetheless, still a search for extreme fieldwork places. Would you say that's true? Is that still a, a kind of uh, uh, still a drive in anthropology that you you know a place like Iran now? Um, as, a, as an attractive place for PhD students trying to um, prove themselves? So Iran's not a particularly attractive place <laughs> for PhD students at the moment, unfortunately. Um, Iran is a, continues to be a fascinating place for me. I've now been back four or five times uh, and am very interested in training Iranians. I've, I've had a couple of Iranian students when you say extreme, I think you mean exotic. And, and more dangerous to one's uh, health and safety than, than other well, field sites. Studying in Chicago, for instance, yeah. is dangerous. Mm-hmm. Um, studying, so I'm thinking of um, Lawrence Ralph's work, for instance, in Chicago, or... Uh, Angela Garcia's work with uh, addiction in southwestern United States and now in Mexico City, which is extremely dangerous work and and very stressful. So yeah, people are attracted to those arenas. I would I would frame them as social problem arenas rather than just extreme uh, arenas for the thrill of 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 extremeness. Um, I don't, I, I'm not trying to say that there's a thrill in it, but that sure uh, there is. <laughs> that as a discipline, it still has an it still has a, an attraction or a connection to places of yeah of so, of social problems of social violence. So I try to I try to code that if you mm-hmm. like as comparative work rather than exotic, uh, domestic or extreme domestic. When you say extreme, I sort of think of, oh, the anthropology of space travel at the moment or living in the ocean or something of that sort. And that is slowly... Antarctic anthropology. Sorry? Toxic anthropology. Yeah. Disaster anthropology. Yeah. Right. All of those things. And disaster anthropology is a perfect case of where you can do parallel studies in places like India. So I mentioned Bhopal already and... Kim Fortune, who's the current president of 4S, wrote a classic book on advocacy after Bhopal, which was not just about Bhopal, but was also about the what we call distributed processes across the globe, the chemical industry. Basically, the study was on the chemical industry, though she started that PhD study in Bhopal, but went on to study Institute West Virginia, which is a, a plant that was built by the same company, had similar problems. So that's a whole methodological set of techniques that we developed at Rice that we called multi-locale or multi-sited ethnography, where the point was not just to multiply sites, but to have different access points to globally distributed processes. So again, it's a new form of comparative work. So the old form of comparative work was, okay, you've got two different cultures, can you compare and contrast them? Or 
better if you have four or five cultures, right, so that you can – and this is what the British social anthropologists tried to do with kinship systems and penal systems and so on. But I, I be, I've increasingly thought of the comparative method as being too limited and really what you do is you juxtapose different situations and you see differences and commonalities across those differences. Well, which brings us nicely to your last couple of books. Okay. Um, which have been very much a kind of theorization of what anthropology is and can be. I guess my first question about that is what compelled you to feel the need to, for example, as you write um, in your most recent book, Rebuild Theory for the 21st Century? What is, what is the pressing concern to, to kind of do this definitional work now? So I'm not sure it's only the last two books. I, I think, think it's yeah. probably <laughs> it probably goes back a ways. Um, I was trying to constrain us to okay. <laughs> but I think the general answer to that is that the world is rapidly changing around us, and we can't. So I think theory back to modeling mm-hmm. the Jewed and uh, even the pragmatics of the Vienna circle, um, school of, of social scientists as well as logicians and mathematicians and philosophers is building from empirical case studies up to theory. So if the empirical world is constantly changing and one wants to get a handle on that, then one constantly needs to see what's different from what was before. I used to teach my classes, I'd say, okay, so is there anything different about the world we live in now from the late 19th century when most of classical social theory was formulated? And if so, what is that difference? And how do we formulate that difference? So that's a question of theory, right? So that's the impetus for rebuilding theory um, from the bottom up, as it were. It's the essential tool for understanding the world that is rapidly changing around us. Mm-hmm. And are there particular figures that you've felt the need to, um, I guess, feature or recoup? You mentioned the Vienna group. Um, I, well, can that, see, I can see a real presence of Derrida. And Derrida, I got fascinated by Derrida. I got um, many of us of the so-called 60s generation, I guess that actually means the 70s, mm-hmm. um, were fascinated by the Frankfurt School and the questions that they raised about political economy. I'm not sure what Australia was like in those days, but in the United States, one couldn't openly read and debate Marx. Um, Marxism was still, you know, semi-taboo. But of course, we all read Marx. um, And the Frankfurt School was kind of the next generation, so Marx is the middle of the 19th century. Frankfurt School is an effort to protect the kinds of inquiry that we thought we were doing against the rise of fascism. Um, and we thought we were in a parallel kind of situation during the Vietnam War. It was equally tense in that sort, so we were looking for groundings. The Vienna Circle comes out of, again, my mother's influence. She was a junior member of that circle and very much a pragmatist, which, so so when I started, when I moved into STS and I started reading a lot of the literature of STS, 
um, particularly the social studies of science literature, my sense was they've got it wrong. They don't know what they're talking about. Um, and particularly their attacks on logical positivists, uh, picking up on one particular strand of logical positivism and not recognizing the larger context of the fight against irrationalism in the 20s and 30s uh, in Europe. And uh, so if you read um, um, Emergent Forms of Life and The Anthropological Voice, I do a few chapters there of trying to narrate how theory has emerged out of these historical periods. Theory is not like mathematical theory, where you just sit down with a pencil. It's built up out of the empirical historical context out of which it arises. And so I go through a series of debates, um, a chapter both on genealogies of STS and one on the histories of cultural analysis, so not cultures in the singular, but relational cultural um, forms of theorization. And so Derrida and Foucault and, and the other French thinkers are the next generation after the Frankfurt School. And depending on how you read them, you can either read them as Nietzschean anarchists who are just deconstructing everything and everything is open to debate, or you can read them as a continuation of the Frankfurt School, which is uh, more appealing to me of trying to think about the changing political economy, the beginnings of neoliberalism, and so on. So Derrida, so Derrida plays a double role for me in that one of the chapters of um, my second book on Iran, so I've got three books on Iran, is an effort to teach Americans or English speakers, Anglophones, how Shiites do interpretive work, how they understand the Quran. And I make an argument in the first book, in Iran, From Religious Dispute to Revolution, um, that actually the, the interpretive methods of Islam and those of casuistry and medieval Catholicism and those of Talmudic argumentation in Judaism are essentially variants on the same thing. Um, Derrida himself, of course, draws on this history of Judaism, but was not trained as in, in Judaism. But he's picking it up, and he's, he's playing with these three traditions as well. Mm -hmm. Is a comparative method there in a kind of, or experimental there is. method there is. of comparison? That, there is. So if you read those comparisons in that first book, it's all there. There's a, there's a comparative method there. So is he an anthropologist in a certain sense, you know, thinking of what you've written about experimental methods, experimental frameworks, he's, you know, it's well, a, he's it's a, a reach. He, he's, he's doing experimental work with, with hermeneutics and interpretive methods. So yes, and we were doing that in the 60s. So there's an immediate connection. We invited him to the Center for Cultural Studies at mm -hmm. Rice. So I've engaged with him a little bit, and I contributed a chapter on media and religion to a book that, um, that was built around his work, tried to get him to engage a little bit more. He claimed not to know anything about Islam, <laughs> which, of course, was nonsense. But <laughs> right. Your most recent book, uh, uh, Anthropology in the Meantime, I guess my first question for those who are unacquainted with it, what does it mean to do anthropology in the meantime? So part of 
part of the argument in, in this new set of essays is that we all tend to jump to judgment very quickly. Oh, it's uh, a neoliberal world. That means we can just read events in society as a coercive deduction from a certain kind of political economy. And I say, well, actually, things are more complicated than that. I dislike the word complicated because <laughs> a lot of intellectuals use complicated as, well, you know, I have more to say about things. I've heard similar complaints about entanglement. Entanglement, same. Yeah. So I want, I want to get us to theoretically unpack those connections, figure out what those connections are, and I make the argument that to do that, you need to do the hard work of ethnography. You have to be really on the ground. You have to test theoretical formulations and see whether they work to if they tell you anything about the conditions in a particular kind of world. So, for instance, um, one used to talk about um, um, decolonial studies, which came out of the subaltern set of historians thinking about India and realizing that the historical record, the official historical record, was told from a particular point of view, a British point of view, and that you could read against the grain of those archives and you could ask, well, why was something recorded here? What was it the answer to? What were the natives actually trying to say or what was a working class trying to say or what were the peasants trying to say? And it was fundamentally transformative for how one thinks about Indian um, development over the last uh, century. That worked okay to a degree for Turkey. It worked okay to a degree for parts of Latin America. It didn't work for China. So one sees that theory works better in certain places. It's like taking a model of a, of a lumpy earth and trying to make a nice mathematical model of it, and you try different ellipsoids to see which one makes a better fit? And in the early days, it was, well, this fits Eurasia a little bit better, but this fits the Americas better, and how do we, how do we map the differences between? So it's a little bit like that, too. This kind of brings us nicely to something I wanted to conclude with, okay. which was talking about your involvement with East Asia, STS. Oh, yeah. um, STS uh, you know, has many vocabularies. Uh, these days, and people are talking about global STS, or transnational STS. I guess uh, a little bit of um, how you came to be involved in the East Asian STS kind of world, and, and, and um, what what is particular about it? What is, how would you explain uh, its difference to uh, STS that in here in the U.S.? So my answer is going to be the same answer. All right, <laughs> which is that. For a long time, STS has been built up <clears throat> on European and American examples, and things look a little bit different in different parts of the world. So I got involved with Asian STS, well, originally from doing work in India. I, was, I interviewed early practitioners in computer science there and the biosciences there. I haven't done very much with that. But I had an opportunity to go to Singapore at a time when I was trying to teach myself about the biosciences in the United States. So I, I live in Boston, which is a big bioscience um, playpen. <laughs> and 
I had a student, a medical student, who wanted to do a rotation in Singapore, and I thought, okay, well, this is my opportunity to follow her and see how a new cutting-edge scientific field gets established in a new place. So the fact that it was Asia was sort of secondary to that question. Um, and it, so it turned out that a number of people at Harvard in the labs at the teaching hospitals at Harvard had labs in Singapore. And I thought, oh, wow, that's an odd social formation. How do you run two labs at the same time? You must do it from an airplane. <laughs> uh, so I followed her there, and she happened to be working in the Genome Institute of Singapore, which is a new institute that got internationally recognized during the SARS crisis. Um, so I've written about that. And the director of that institute happened at the time to also be the president of the Human Genome Organization. And he said, sure, you can come hang out in, in our labs, um, do a study uh, with us, see if we discover anything. And, you know, it may be a <laughs> It may work out, it may not, um, but if you could do this, you have to you have to come to Hyderabad in October. This was June, and, and that was October, and I we're having a human genome organization meeting, and I'll introduce you to everybody in the world who works on this. So I got drawn into this um, in these two organizations that were transnational, but that had particular projects and foci in Asia. So one of the projects that he developed through the Human Genome Organization was something that was called the uh, Pan-Asian SNPs Consortium. So I won't try to explain what SNPs <laughs> Sorry, are at the moment. People can Google it. <laughs> uh, people can Google it. But it was an effort, sociologically, it was an effort to do what I call and what he called, actually, this is an emic term, a, a native category, if you like, um, uh, scientific diplomacy. And the idea was Asian nations are really suspicious of one another and competitive and rivals. Can we design a project that through friendship networks where we can draw scientists from different countries with that are rich and poor, some of them have um, – technological facilities like Singapore or Japan or Taiwan, and others don't, like Laos or Cambodia or Indonesia at that point, um, and still, actually. Can we bring them into a common project where they bring their samples? They don't give us the samples, but they bring their samples, and we show them how to use the um, technology, and we all contribute to a common project. And this project was about um, migration patterns into, into Asia. It was very controversial at the time. It was very hard getting a publication out of it, but they did. And now it's gone on to refine the, um, the density of um, the sampling procedures and, and so on. So I guess my answer to whether or not there is an Asian STS is, again, my answer that one has to pay attention to what it looks like on the ground in these different places. I think it is useless to debate whether or not there is something called Asian science or Asian STS. There's science being done in these different places. There are different constraints on doing the science. There are different opportunities as well. 
And so there's always a, a back-and-forth struggle between contributing to what I call the International Republic of Science, um, which is international, um, competitive. People, people, you know, try to beat each other out for credit or patents or what have you. And local contributions, their national agendas on using the sciences to build national economies. For instance, Singapore is very strong in in trying to do that, as is Taiwan, as is Korea. And so those are all really interesting, both scientific community questions, but also uh, general anthropological, sociological ones. So I think it's important to have scientists um, be contributors from around the world, um, to not have just an imperialism of high-impact journals that are controlled in London and Paris and, I don't know, wherever, New York or Boston or mm-hmm. wherever, but that somehow practitioners everywhere um, can be in the conversation. So we've been trying to do that with um, an initiative that one of my Indonesian friends who teaches in Singapore was trained in the United States, uh, Sofakar Amir. Um, he's been running, he's run now two conferences, one in Singapore, but the more interesting one, which was this past summer, was in Makassar in Sulawesi, where under the, the label of Global STS, but where the idea was to do it we're going to have a conference in Indonesia. Oh, let's go to Bali. You know, we'll have fun. No, let's do it someplace that's off the beaten track, but that has regional importance and see if we can draw local contributors into the international conversation. And so we did that with a series of workshops, and it was a fascinating workshop, quite successful in terms of the agendas of the local university as well as the agendas of, let's say, the STS community. Well, with that description of a fascinating conversation, it's probably a good place to leave this fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Tim. You've been listening to another episode of Conversations in Anthropology, a podcast about life, the universe, and anthropology. This podcast is produced by David Border-Giles, Timothy Neal, Camille Daly, Maithli Meher, and Matt Barlow. It's made in partnership with the American Anthropological Association. To learn more about this podcast, you can find us on Twitter. We're at AnthroConvo. And if you feel like it, you can rate and review us on your chosen podcasting platforms.